Okay, we're continuing our studies. We call them Lent studies, but uh, it's on the last week of Christ's life. Now everything we're doing, Sunday school and and uh, Tuesday night and Sunday morning, is all focusing on that last week of Christ's life. And we have gone day by day, uh, Sunday riding in, Monday clearing the temple, Tuesday conflict, Tuesday sold out by Judas, Thursday the Last Supper, and now we come to Thursday night. And we're going to look at uh, the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. And there are people who are very good people, who I respect highly, who don't want to talk about this much because they think it's too deep for us. And I do agree with that. I think it's just too deep for us. Uh, I think it's, it's, un, it's unfathomable. You can't grasp all of what we want to talk about tonight. And so uh, I don't agree that we shouldn't talk about it. Um, some people say don't even talk about it. Uh, I don't agree with that. It wouldn't be in the Bible if we weren't meant to look at it and think about it. However, if we think we got all the answers, then, then we're wrong right away. And so we certainly don't want to have that attitude. Um, but this is the night in Gethsemane that Christ spent there. And best thing I can say, and I want to treat this differently, um, I don't think I would do this on a Sunday morning. I don't think I would do it on a Sunday morning. Well, sometimes on Sunday morning I look out and there's people on their phones. You know, uh, I know that. <laughs> there's people who are not paying attention. And this is something that we really need to think about and be very serious about. And I would say it's the kind of thing when we come to it where uh, you'd say like God said to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground now. This is something deeper than you're used to. And so uh, when I say, when he said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, this isn't something you tread underfoot and take lightly. Uh, this is very much the heart of Jesus Christ opened up, poured out, and so uh, it is intense. And I'm going to treat it differently, too. I'm going to read two texts, one in Mark 14, the other one in Luke 22, and I'm going to read them completely. Normally, <clears throat> you know that when I read a text, I read a verse, explain it, another couple, and I explain it. That's usually how I do it. This is something uh, we're looking for, a larger effect than just me explaining it. And so we're going to read these two texts, one and then the other straight through and I guess one thing we could look for as we read are the emotions that are described here the emotions as we go through 
what happened here and what's being described. If you pay attention and watch them, we'll put them up on the board when we're done and try to put them in order so that we can get a sense. We can't figure out all that was in his mind. Uh, and we're going to think about a few things, but we, we can't. But we will read through and think through and, and uh, try to uh, grasp some of what went on anyway, uh, that we might have a very respectful approach to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. Uh, there was a Mount of Olives where you came up over it and into Jerusalem. I've described it at length when I talked about coming into uh, riding the donkey up over the Mount of Olives and down the other side into Jerusalem. <clears throat> Partway up on the Mount of Olives, on the side towards Jerusalem, is a garden. There are terraced gardens. There were uh, terraced gardens all up the mountainside, just like they did in the temple. They terraced these gardens, and they would cut into the stone and uh, make a level, and then up another level. And we don't know how far up, a few levels up, is the Garden of Gethsemane. It means olive press because there are olive trees in it. And the olive trees were pretty wide spreading trees. Not always so tall, but if you think of a great big old apple tree all spread out, something like that, more along those lines for an olive tree. And they'd be in these gardens, they'd plant these olive trees and they would put an olive press, or that is, it would be a stone, probably, carved out where you would take your olives to squeeze them for olive oil and pick the olives, put them in the stone, squeeze them down, and make olive oil. And so Gethsemane, the name of the garden is Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives, and uh, we will... Uh, begin there. If you were in Gethsemane and you're looking over into Jerusalem, uh, you would see the wall of Jerusalem be prominent in front of you, the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And then you might be able to see the temple. It depends on how high up you were. And uh, so that's where this takes place. So I'm going to read first one passage, and we'll go the other. Uh, there is another passage in Matthew uh, that uh, talks about that, and we might refer back and forth a little bit, but we're mainly going to read uh, Mark's gospel to get the, the series of events. And Dr. Luke goes into much more uh, the heart of what happened there. He's not concerned with is the order that they took place. He's trying to tell us as a doctor what happened there. And so you always read Luke, remember it's written by a doctor. Okay, Mark chapter 14 is the first one. I'm starting at verse number 32. <clears throat> and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, begin to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. 
And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. He cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go, lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him great multitudes with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away. And so there's the first record of what happened. We go over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I begin reading at verse number, let's see where we are, 39. Luke 22, same event told in a different way, verse 39. He came out and went as he was wont. That's old English, it means as was his custom. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. So I'm going to read again. From verse 42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. All right, so trace the emotions and they keep getting higher and higher. And there's a sadness as he begins 
mentions that he's sad. And in one of the texts, it mentions he's exceedingly sorrowful. He's not just sad, he's exceedingly sorrowful. And then it says that he is amazed. And then it says that he was heavy. And then it says that he was in agony. And so there's a series of emotions that get more and more and more and more and more intense as he's going through this time. Uh, we think by what he said it was three hours. I'm not sure that it was that long, but it was a long time. They had the Last Supper, finished the Last Supper. Judas leaves to go and betray him. And uh, so they get up and they go through the gate out of Jerusalem over a little brook up the mountain into this little uh, closed-in garden. It would be closed and fenced off, and he'd be in that garden. And Judas, I'm sure, brought the betrayers with him, the, the people who are going to arrest Jesus, first to the upper room, which gave Jesus more time. And then Judas figuring, well, if he's going to go anywhere, he'll go to Gethsemane. And so uh, he knows. You get to see something here that you don't see. You're not allowed to see it anywhere else. And that's Jesus praying. Whenever we see Jesus praying, you know, it'll say, well, Jesus went out and prayed all night. You don't get to go with him. You never got to go with him before. All the times it happened, and it recurs over and over through the three and a half years, where suddenly he's gone. Where'd he go? Well, he went out and he's praying all night. All right? You never get to look at that until now. This is your first and last look in, so there's something very special about this. And we, Jesus' basic prayer is, if it be possible, if it's possible, remove the cup from me. Remove the cup from me. And uh, the cup is what happens next. He has something to do, and he calls it a cup, something that, well, I got to do this. He's going to drink the whole cup. And, and so he calls it the cup. And what's coming in the immediate future uh, is suffering, crucifixion, and then death. That's what's in the cup in a very general sort of way. And so he prays, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And if not, he says, you do what you want. Three times he prays to God, remove the cup if possible. If not, 
I will drink it or I will do what needs to be done. And we know what was going to be done. Uh, suffering, intense suffering, and then crucifixion, of course, the same two things, and then death. And so it would seem uh, that these are what we might call reasons to fear. That cup that he would like to avoid here. And we try to figure out, well, what is it exactly? What is it that he wants to avoid? Uh, what's going to happen to him? And so forth. And what are those things? Um, and so we think of these emotions here. And we're going to come back to these because we want to think about the reasons for it. And there's a lot of people that have tried to figure this out. And um, there's some of them that I just know they're, they're wrong. And some of them that I'm not sure. And yet, it may be all of these things. Maybe all of these things that we think about. So let's go down a list here. We uh, <coughs> talk about a physical pain. Physical pain. Remember, he's going to be crucified. If anybody ever figured of a horrible, terrible way to die, that was it. In the history of mankind, they've come up with some really amazing, terrible things. Uh, when they were uh, persecuting Christians, uh, they fried some of them, fried them alive. They, they made a big metal plate, built a fire on it, and threw the people on top and fried them alive. Um, in Roman times, another way that they had was to uh, chain a dead body to you until you died of gangrene. All right? And you think this is humans thinking of ways to torture people. I mean, we think of the German concentration camps where they took them in the showers and pumped gas in and killed them all. And, you know, those are horrible things that they did there. But uh, people have thought of some pretty horrible ways. But crucifixion, I think, is the worst thing they ever thought of. The point of crucifixion was is to inflict no mortal wound only to nail hands and feet and to hang you there uh, and so that you died very, very, very slowly. And what happened was uh, you were on a nail. You had your feet on a nail, one foot on top of the other with a big spike through both of them. And after a while, you're hanging there and your arms are all stretched out of socket, pulled out of socket. And the only way you can breathe is to push up on that foot. And so you 
push up on the foot, not to breathe in, but to exhale. You can't exhale hanging down. And so you'd take a breath and then push up and then go down. And it's horrible, horrible, horrible way to die. And there were people who were left on crosses for five, six days. Um, the Jews, because of their religious uh, opinions, uh, said, no, we want them off the cross right away. And so what they did was they come with a club and, and, and break your leg. When your legs are broken, then you can't push up. And so you suffocate, but you suffocate differently than most people suffocate. You suffocate because you can't exhale. All right, and so your chest fills up and blows up. And uh, what it creates in your head uh, is tre tremendous pressure in your head. And so the, the agony of crucifixion is just unspeakable. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, and so if you're thinking about that, uh, say, well, I'd like to miss that, huh? I don't think so. No, I don't, you know, I said nobody knows. Uh, you see, with Jesus, uh, it says that he went on the cross ignoring the pain for the pleasure that it would bring in the future or the salvation of you and me. You and me and him together is the pleasure he's talking about. And so he said he ignored pain and uh, so I don't think that pain was what he was afraid of. Now there's of course, he he's, he's has a human body. And because of his human body, you know, everybody shrinks from pain, right? Here, let me hit your hand with a hammer and see if you move it before I swing. I'm not going to let you do it. You know, we, we naturally shrink from pain being human, and he is human. Uh, but if you want to see something, look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And I cannot say that the thought of the agony of crucifixion wasn't in his mind. I mean, but here's what he did. Mark chapter 15, verse 22. And they bring him to the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull, or as Calvary, where they crucified him. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. And what the, there was ladies in Jerusalem, and they uh, asked the Romans, we want to help these people that are crucified. And so we're going to bring myrrh. And myrrh is, is like a, something that uh, uh, killed pain, put you off in, in your mind uh, so the pain wasn't so bad. 
And so the ladies of Jerusalem donated that to the soldiers and they'd mix it with some of their wine and give it to the people they're going to crucify. It's a way of mercy. You know, you're going to, pain of being nailed got to be just eh, intense and agonizing. And they said, well, drink this first. And Jesus tasted it and said, no, I refuse it. So he took the pain full bore because he refused anything that would deaden the pain. So if you say, well, he was thinking about the physical pain of being crucified and he's shrinking back from it. I can't say no, but when I see what he did, then I kind of say, well, yeah, he just went in there and said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take this pain. So that's part of it. There's more to it than that. If you look at Deuteronomy, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter number 21. Here's something way, way, way back in Moses' time. These are instructions that Moses was given by God. And here's one of these instructions, and, and we read it. It's kind of amazing. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 and verse number 22. If a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. And so it would seem to be that sometimes they killed a man because a criminal, a criminal. I mean, he's, a, he's done something that was worthy of death, and then they hung him on a tree. And they would do that as a deterrent for crime, all right? They're, that's what crucifixion was, open hanging. So you want that? Straighten up, and you won't get that. And so way back here in the first laws that Moses gets, he says, if you do put somebody on a tree, even after they're dead, you don't leave them there. But the reason is, is that anybody hangs on a tree is accursed. All right? So anybody on a tree, dead, is accursed. He's been cursed uh, by God. He's cursed. And when it comes to Jesus hanging on the tree, I think that's something that we forget to think about. Uh, it was infamy. You know what I mean. Infamy. Uh, somebody hangs on a tree and any Jewish person looks and says, well, that person is cursed by God. 
They wouldn't be hanging there if they weren't cursed by God. And, uh, and so that was the old law. That's the way God put it. It's repeated in the New Testament in another place. Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. And so if you're Jesus and you've been teaching people, healing people, uh, trying to guide people, be a light to people, and everything in your power to bring them to believe in you and yourself. And believe that you're the son of God, that you're the light of the world, that you are the bread of life, that you are the living water. And you're trying to communicate these things to the people around you. Now if you hang on that tree, he's cursed. He's cursed. If he's hanging there, he's cursed. All right. And so uh, the people that you're trying to convince see you hanging on a tree. Uh, <laughs> their conclusion is that he can't be there unless he's cursed of God. And so all that you've been building, all that you've been teaching, all that you've been instructing, all the people you've been healing, all these people that you're hoping, believe in me. He's telling them, believe in me. Look what I've got. From, know who I am. They see him on that tree and they say, all we can say is some reason he's cursed of God. And so that's a very powerful thing in a Jewish mind. And we don't even think of that, all right, because we, we don't think that way. But in a Jewish mind, it's very powerful. And so they see him hang on a tree, and it becomes what I call infamy, or that is, he is, uh, he is, um, he, he can't be right. He can't be what he claims to be. He's on a tree. And what do they say when they nail him to the tree? It's exactly what they say. If you're the son of God, come down. Don't stay there. Come down. If you're the son of God and you hang there, we know that everybody that hangs on a tree is accursed. And so is that one of the reasons that Jesus is saying, look, uh, is, is there any other way? Is there any other way? Can you remove this cup? I'm thinking that's part of it. Right? And people would look at that, him on the cross, and say, he's not Messiah, or he wouldn't be there. All right? So certainly as Jesus is praying and saying, remove this cup, is it possible? Is there some other way? That, I think, is part of his thing. Now, the next thing I'm going to say is that this is Satan full bore. Satan full bore. That the moment we get to this point, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's wrestling. And I believe that there is a temptation by Satan in the garden. He's going to get him to do anything he can get him to do to turn from this. 
And so Satan, you have to remember, and Jesus himself said when they come to arrest him, he says, this is your hour. This is the hour of darkness. And this is the power of darkness. And so as he goes into Gethsemane, we see him, he's sweating blood. He's now laying face down on the ground. What's the struggle? Well, part of it is an attack, full-blown attack by Satan. And uh, if we look at uh, Luke 22 again, we may get the idea just a little bit how intense this was. Luke 22 Verse 3, this is um, when he went to turn Jesus in on Tuesday night. Verse 3, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. He went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him. So it says there, Satan went into him or possessed him. You have to agree with Satan for that to be. Uh, and so he's saying, I'm, I'm going to turn him over. And Satan said, yeah, that's it. I needed somebody, and you're the guy. I'm going with you. And Satan goes inside of him. And then if you look at Luke 22, uh, verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, he's talking to Peter, behold, Satan has desire to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And so uh, it's not just Judas. He's after Peter. And he has particularly singled out Peter because he knows he's a leader. I'm going to take Peter down too. And I'm going to crush him, sift him like wheat. My, my mother used to let me sift wheat in the sifter, you know. Had a crank on it, and you put your weed in there, and man, I could beat that stuff. That's what he's going to do to Peter. I'm going to beat him to a pulp. I am going to smash him into pieces. I'm going to sift him. All right, so uh, very, very active. Uh, Satan is very active. He's singling out the disciples that he's going to take down. He's going full bore after Jesus. And I guess probably the one is in John 13 um, where he really jumps in. John 13, verse 25. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? That is John is laying next to Jesus, got his head on his chest. And he whispers in his ear, who's the traitor? 
And Jesus answered, he it is to whom I will give a sop when I have dipped it. It would be a piece of lamb wrapped in leaves with a piece of radish in it, and he dips it into the uh, vinegar, puts it on a piece of unleavened bread, and they call it a sop. And when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And so, you remember at the Last Supper, there's 13 people there right? No, there's 14. Satan is in the room. And Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. And if he's going to enter into Judas' spirit, he's in the upper room. Alright? And so, he enters into Judas at that point, possesses him, and then the next time we see Judas, he's kissing Jesus, betraying him. And so he had him. He just was a puppet in his hand. And his behavior is very strange, very weird. When he comes, they come to arrest Jesus, and he, and he kisses them, and, uh, oh, master, and he kisses them, and Jesus said, you betray me with a kiss, Judas? And, oh, master. And it's a... Uh, hmm. Something very weird, but it's Satan's power. So Satan's power is vented now at Jesus in a particular way. Now the good news is that's not the first time that's ever happened. Back in Matthew chapter 4, we get this happening again. Or I should say one of the first times it happens is the temptation of Jesus. And so... We see some very striking similarities here. And uh, Satan understands human nature. He gets you and me, man. He can handle you like nothing. He can handle me with his eyes closed. He knows how to handle us. Because he knows our weaknesses. He knows that. So he tried to use human weakness against Jesus in the temptation here in the wilderness. This is right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately he goes out to the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. It says afterwards he was hungry. I don't know how many of you remember when the Irish Republican Army was doing that. Some of you may recall when these people in the Irish Republican Army were, went on hunger fast to prove their point. And they'd get to 30 days and they, they're right on the verge of death. Uh, everything collapsing, their body failing. Jesus has just fasted 40 days. 40 days. And verse 3, the tempter came and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, somebody hasn't eaten for 40 days. They are not just hungry. It's not, you're not just hungry. Your body is on the verge of collapse and failure. I mean, those guys didn't make it to 40 days. Those Irish Republican Army guys, they didn't make it. They died before that. Jesus has been tempted 40 days. Satan comes, how you doing? <laughs> you can turn that into bread right there. That's a powerful temptation, right, for somebody 
who is in a physical body and is starving, beyond starving, beyond starving, and uh, make some bread. Go ahead and make some bread and eat it. And so it's a powerful temptation. When he comes to the uh, temptation of Christ in Gethsemane, you know, he said, you got that physical body. You want to be nailed? Do you want to be nailed? Is that what you want? You want them to drive nails through your feet? You want to hang on a cross, gasping for air? That you want that? And so I'm sure Satan... Uh, going to use his physical body against him. The first time Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Because behind Satan's temptation here is, hey, look, just take stones and make them bread. Make you feel better, and the whole world will love you. And that's exactly what happened when he fed the 5,000, you remember? Fed 5,000, what do they say? We're making him king. <laughs> he, he's not getting away from us. If a guy can feed us with five loaves and two fishes, he's going to be our king or a bread king. And so the temptation is always with Satan, you can do this another way. There's another way for you to gain followers. Get people to believe in you. Just be a bread king. Feed them all. That's all you need to do. It doesn't matter what you You'll be all set. And, and so uh, the idea is that you can get people to follow you is what he's doing. And as he's facing the cross, he says, well, you're going to be cursed if you hang on a tree. I thought you wanted people to follow you. It's a very intense temptation that he makes. And if we look farther down, the devil takes him up uh, to the highest pinnacle in the temple, which was pretty high, and he said, jump off. Jump off, because the Bible says, and it does say, and he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways unless you dash your foot against the stone. So jump off the steeple out here and just float to the ground. And there's thousands of people there in the temple, and they'll, when you hit the ground, they'll worship you, and they'll follow you anywhere. If you do a miracle, that's all you need to do, one like that. And they'll follow you anyway. Just jump off the temple, float down, and land down there in the middle of the crowd, and they'll be worshiping you. And that's his temptation. And of course, to Jesus, you don't have to stay on that cross. You could come off. You could get off. There's no reason you have to stay there. And I think if you came off, they'd follow you. If you stay on, it's infamy, and they'll think you're accursed. So why don't you just get off? And that's what they said at the foot of the cross, right? If you're the son of God, what? Come down. Let's see you come down. And Satan was right. He understood human nature. 
understood human nature. And so it's a temptation, full-blown temptation. And the last one, uh, he takes up to a high mountain, shows him everything in the world. These are my kingdoms, says Satan. They do what I say. All these things will I give thee if thou shalt fall down and worship thee. Satan said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, him only shalt thou serve. Or in other words, Jesus you want these people, everybody in the world, to follow you, all right? Just lower the standard a little. Bring the standard down. You can bow to me. It's not going to hurt anything. If you bow to me, I'll give you all this stuff. The whole world will be in your pocket. But lower your standards and don't make it so intense. Then you can follow me. And so the temptation, of course, at the cross is exactly that. You know, what are you doing? I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Don't, don't make such a high ideal of it. Just lower the standards a little and everybody will be fine. So the temptation by Satan is, look, you know, this cross is not going to do for you what you think. It's going to be painful. Why don't you escape and get off the cross? Lower your standards. Don't go there. Avoid the cross. And of course, the temptation is what? So that everybody in the whole world, you and me too, all go to hell. That's what he's after. He wants everybody in the world to go to hell. Get that in your head. That's what he's after. First, he'd like to kill you. All right, that's what he wants to do to you and me. He wants to kill us. Don't, don't ever mistake that. He wants you dead, and he wants you in hell, the next thing. And so if Jesus would lower his standards. And so the temptation in the Garden of Eden by Satan, which is full bore, he's taking over the disciples. He's taking over Caiaphas. He's taking over uh, the, the, everything. It's, that's his moment. Jesus said, this is the moment where he's in charge. And he said, that's what we're doing. So, um, the temptation by Satan is pretty powerful there. And is he calling on that, asking that? Well, there's more. There's more. Um, and this, number four, the wages of sin. And in particular, what this Bible says is he became sin. Now, does Jesus shrink back from the pain? I don't think so. When he says, take this cup from me, I don't think that's it. Because when he gets a chance to have the pain at least a little bit curved, he refuses it. Don't, I'm not drinking that stuff. Is he afraid to die? For heaven's sakes, he is not afraid to die. 
there have been warriors in the world who have not been afraid to die, go out on a battlefield and fight until death. They're doing it right now in the Ukraine. They're fighting till the death. If people are not afraid to die. And I, when people say, well, Jesus was afraid to die, I just can't buy that. He's not the Jesus I know. Not the Jesus I know. I, I don't believe that he was afraid to die. I mean, I don't think that that crossed his mind. Satan's attacks, because Satan can only deal in the realm of human nature, uh, what he says makes no appeal to Jesus. You know, it doesn't appeal. The way back here when he started in, uh, in the beginning of his ministry, it didn't make any difference then. But I do think, when you think about these emotions here, uh, he was sad. He's feeling certainly no joy at this moment. But then he goes on to say he's exceeding sorrowful and he says to his disciples, I'm feeling exceedingly sorrowful uh, even to the point of dying of sorrow. Now I can't wrap my head around that. I've had moments where I've been really sad but I can't wrap my head around that one. Uh, he said, and the only thing I can think when he says I'm so sorrowful that I feel like I'm gonna die of sorrow is that I can try to express it like there's waves of sorrow. This one comes over and then the next one and the next one and the next one and pretty soon you're just drowning in it. And I think that is where he began to go in the Garden of Gethsemane, his intense sorrow. And then it says that he's amazed. That's a fascinating word. And that he has never felt like this before. He's amazed. And that the feelings that are going through him, he's... I never felt this before. And then it says that he felt heavy. Um, this is putting on him a burden that's so heavy I can't take it. Uh, some things you can't pick up, right? I was trying to pick up something pretty heavy the other day. <laughs> I said, when I was young, I could have picked that up. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I couldn't get it. Some things are so heavy you can't pick it up, and it says he began to feel heavy, and the burden of what he's feeling is crushing him. I'm crushing, and, he's, and he goes down full flat, on his face on the ground laying down. I think the burden of it is just horrible. He can't take the burden until it turns into agony, an intensified pain, crippling, 
where the body's reeling and the head spins and he's in such an intense agony from his emotions what he's feeling that emotion comes and then he has the moment where he's just shaking and trembling all over and it is registered in the history of mankind not very often but occasionally it has been seen in history where people bleed through their pores and it's because there's such an intense pressure on their mind that's more than they can stand. And what happens is the pores in your skin break open and you bleed, you sweat blood. You sweat blood through the pores that break open. And Jesus is dripping with blood all over, just from the intensity. Now what is it? What is it? What is it? I don't know. I'm gonna take a guess and smarter people than me have come up with what this might be. But it is the transfer of sin onto Jesus who never knew sin. So they're going to put how much sin? All of it. So how much sin was there in the world up to the flood? Well, it says that he destroyed the world by the flood because they only thought evil all the time. That's just up to the flood. Right? And it goes on and on and on and on. And uh, the sins of the Jews building... Uh, idols right inside the temple, uh, the, the wages of sin, more and more and more. I mean, uh, if you had all the sins of the world on you, you think all the sins of Babylon, all the sins of Egypt, all the sins of everybody, uh, it's overwhelming. I mean, look at the, 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 uh, uh, what they did in the German Holocaust, shot people, whoever they want, starved them to death, <clears throat> made them dig a hole and, and shot them and threw them in the hole and gassed people in the showers and it goes on and on and on and on until they'd kill millions <clears throat> um, and go into what humans do, uh, vicious, horrible murders, rapes of children and anything you can think of. It's all going on him. And he never sinned anything. And it's like, <clears> the <throat> only way I can kind of describe it, I was, gonna, I was working all day, I was going to bring my T-shirt tonight, my dirty old smelly one that I was at work on all the day. Ask anybody who want to try it on. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's think of, think of your, your outside working in a sweat's pouring, that wasn't today, but sweat's pouring off of you and you're working in the dirt and whatever else on the farm, we worked in more than dirt. And uh, you take that clothes, it's all just coated and here, I want you to wear this. I'm not wearing that, get that thing away from me. 
He put on clothes that were so disgusting and so filthy and so rotten and so perverted. He's got to put those on and wear them. He's got to carry that sin. And it goes much further than we think. You know, we can think of uh, government holocausts and wars and, and all those things, uh, the sins of the church through the ages. I told you they fried people alive. They fed people to the lions. They did all sorts of things. But uh, what about just envy? Envy. You got to put that on. He never had any of that. What about complaining? You can wear that. Truth ignored. Bad language used. Bitterness. Arrogance. Jesus never had any arrogance. You can put it all that the world ever had on his shoulder and carry it. And he says to God, is there some other way? Isn't there a way? I don't have to do it this way. Is there any other way? And he prays, if it's possible, remove the cup from me. What's in the cup? Every evil, wicked thing that man ever did. Now, you and I can't wrap our head around that much sin. Um, but we don't have to. Because the real goal is what's in there that you put in there. What'd you put in that cup? Which one of your attitudes and which one of your arrogance and which one of your stuff that came out of your mouth is in that cup? That's what matters. And if he's got to drink that cup and he said, I'm going to drink it right to the dregs, I'm going to drink it all. And if that's in there, then you and I need to think about that. If that's in there, if we put something in that cup, and we did. And so when he's praying three times, please, is there some other way? I don't think it's death and suffering. But I do think it is the wages of sin and that he's becoming sin and he's taking uh, the filthy garment that we got to get rid of. Right? He's, he's, are, you washed, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Right? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Yeah, we got to take off the old filthy one uh, and he's got to put that on. And uh, it was overwhelming the amount of sin that was there. And I can see where it becomes agony, an intensified agony as he just can't take it. And so as his blood vessels break and he's bleeding through his pores, finally he's about to die right there. Understand, if that happens to you, you're not going to live. And so... An angel comes down, 
just like in the beginning in the temptation in the wilderness, an angel came to help him. In Gethsemane, an angel came down and said, I'm going to help you get through this because you're going to die if I don't. All right. I'm going to help you get through this. And so uh, the fascinating thing God's plan there's two gardens there's a garden of Eden and in the garden of Eden Adam who is the son of God he had no Parents. He was made directly by God. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam is in that garden. And he's the son of God in a way. That's Adam. And he says, what I want, I want to be like God. I want to get divine divinity. And if I eat of the true tree of the fruit of the knowledge of evil, Satan says we'll be like God. And so he chose disobedience. He made a choice. It was disobedience. He made a choice to disobey and tried to take Godhood on himself. Of course, he fails and he dies. And because of his failure, all of his children inherit death. Now, there's another garden called Gethsemane. And there is a son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes humankind, manhood, on himself. Adam tried to take divinity on himself. Failed. Jesus takes humanity on himself and succeeds because it says he chose obedience. He chose to obey. What did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You say it, Father, I do it. Whatever you say, I do. Alright? And so, he said, in that garden, he took on humanity, chose to obey, and as a result, all of his children inherit life. Isn't that wonderful? We inherit from being in his family. We inherit life in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the struggle is not on the cross. The cross was all, the struggle was over when he went to the cross. He would still have some darkness there on the cross, but 
the struggle inside of him, am I going to take sin on my own self and carry all the sins of the human And when I say, people say, back off and don't try to explain it, I agree we can't explain it. And what I've done tonight barely is a little scratch on the surface of what happened. When he's down there sweating blood and agony, don't ask me to explain how he feels. I can't. It's gone beyond human comprehension and way beyond human language. It's beyond human language. And so the Garden of Gethsemane is a very special moment where Jesus uh, says, please, some other way. Is he afraid to die? No. Is he afraid to suffer? No. But that taking sin on himself so that he would be guilty of every sin ever committed and die because of that. That's an unspeakable horror to somebody like him. So the intense emotions that pour out to the point of agony. I'm going to die of sorrow. Those emotions point us to the heart of one who said, I will take their sins and set them free no matter what. You want it, Father? I'm going to do it. And he willingly then put the cross on his shoulder and carried it out to Calvary. So, it's a very thought-provoking uh, passage. Uh, I can't plumb its depth, but I hope I've made you to think a little about the price that was paid. Thank you. <laughs>